0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. It's been an exciting week at the National Constitution Center. On October 21st, we awarded our Liberty Medal to Malala Yousafzai, the youngest ever recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. She's the seventh person who has won the Liberty Medal and has gone on to win the Nobel, and it was a thrilling, emotionally compelling evening where this young hero talked about how important education and free speech are in defending liberty and equality for people across the globe. It was really an honor to be part of it. On October 27th, we are excited to be offering a preview of our new gallery that will display one of the 12 original copies of the Bill of Rights, along with rare copies of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. You can watch the live stream of it on October 27th, and we will issue it as a podcast next week. I'm now delighted to welcome you to the third installment of our thrilling series, Ask Jeff. You, our great listeners, have sent in your questions about the Constitution through social media channels. They've been collected by our crack web strategist, Nicondro Iannacci, who will ask me uh, your questions and I'll do my best to answer them. Nicondro, thanks so much for joining and curating these great questions and looking forward to our conversation.
1: Hey, thank you for joining us. Let's get right into it. The first question is broad, but I I think you can handle it. Does the Bill of Rights bestow rights or does it protect liberties?
0: It's a great question, and for the founders, the answer would have been clear. The Bill of Rights recognizes inherent, unalienable, and natural rights that belong to all human beings rather than creating or bestowing those rights. There was a lot of Debate at the time of the framing, but the existence of natural rights was not one of them. James Madison and the other framers were deeply versed in the Scottish Enlightenment, in natural rights theorists like John Locke and Francis Hutcheson and Jean-Jacques Burlamacchi. And like Jefferson in his famous Declaration of Independence, they believed that in a state of nature, all human beings are imbued by God with certain inherent natural rights that can't be alienated or surrendered to government uh, under any circumstances. Uh, Among those unalienable rights are the right to alter and abolish government whenever it becomes destructive of rights that are retained during the transition from the state of nature to civil society. Other unalienable rights included the right to worship God according to the dictates of conscience, which the framers believed you have no ability to surrender to government because your religious beliefs are the product of reason applied by the human mind. So all this is to say that Madison originally thought a Bill of Rights was either unnecessary or dangerous, unnecessary because all of these unalienable rights were already implicitly protected by the Constitution, especially by the fact that Congress was granted no power to attack or uh, threaten uh, unalienable and retained rights. Or a Bill of Rights could be dangerous because it might be assumed that if a right wasn't written down, it wasn't retained. Uh, but in the face of pressure from anti federalist and from state ratifying conventions, many of which demanded amendments as a condition of ratification, Madison changed his mind and included the Bill of Rights. It's fascinating, uh, and you can see in our great new Bill of Rights exhibit, that what we know as the First Amendment was not the original First Amendment. The original Bill of Rights, uh, which you can see at the National Constitution Center soon, uh, included 12 amendments. The first one had to do with apportionment and basically said after a period of time there should be one representative for every 50,000 people. If that were still in place, Congress would have more than 6,000 representatives today rather than uh, about 435. Uh, That wasn't adopted. Uh, The original Second Amendment had to do with uh, Congress raising its own salary without an intervening election, and that was adopted in the 90s as the uh, 27th Amendment. Um, The original First Amendment was initially the Third Amendment. But Madison, in assembling these amendments, didn't um, make them up out of thin air. He basically cut and pasted among the revolutionary state constitutions that had been adopted between 1776 and 1787 And again, in our great new Bill of Rights gallery and online, you will soon be able to explore the documentary sources of the Bill of Rights. We've got a wonderful new interactive that we've developed along with Constitutes, the great website that collects all of the world's constitution. And uh, you'll soon be able to go to our microsite if you're listening by podcast or come to the museum and click on any provision in the bill of rights and see its historical antecedents you can see that the virginia declaration of 1776 written by george mason was one of madison's principal inspirations and you can compare the language of the virginia declaration and the u.s bill of rights but you can also look at the uh pennsylvania constitution was a big influence as was the massachusetts uh, declaration of rights and by textually comparing what madison borrowed and and what the innovation was and and how the language evolved as it moved through the house and through the Senate and was ultimately uh, uh, proposed by Congress, um, it's a wonderful confirmation of the fact that far from bestowing rights, the Bill of Rights really was just restating rights that had been implicit in Magna Carta, recognized by some of the colonial era charters, but really um, became much more explicit in the revolutionary era state constitutions that whose, whose framers, like Madison, were imbued by this natural rights theory.
1: So uh, a follow-up on that about the Ninth Amendment. Could you explain, uh, as our questioner asks, in terms that a high school freshman could understand what the amendment means and why it was included?
0: It's a great follow-up. And we should begin by reading the Ninth Amendment. And I, now I'm scrambling to find my pocket constitution. I can almost do the ninth by heart, but I don't want to leave it to chance. So I've got it right here, and I'm thumbing through uh, the Bill of Rights in my great National Constitution Center Constitution. Incidentally, we've got a new edition out with a introductory essay that I've written with David Rubenstein about the relationship between the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, which very much relates to this question about... What the ninth amendment says so let me now read it it says the enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people what does that mean it meant that the framers thought don't assume that if a right isn't written down in the bill of rights it isn't protected period this is a rule of construction. The ninth amendment doesn't create any rights. It doesn't tell us what of those unenumerated rights or rights that aren't written down are in fact retained by the people. It just says, don't assume that if the right isn't written down, it's not protected. Now, if I had another beat, which I guess I'm going to take, I'd I'd say this directly relates to that natural rights theory that I was just talking about for a moment. The framers thought that we're all born in this state of nature before people form governments, we have these inherent and unalienable rights that we can't surrender to government even if we want to. And those are the rights that are retained by the people, to use the Ninth Amendment's language, when we form governments and move from a state of nature to civil society. And then, you know, just one more beat. The whole point of forming governments is to ensure the greater security and safety of the rights that are retained by the people. And when government becomes abusive of those rights, as Jefferson said in his declaration, it's the unalienable right and, in fact, the duty of people to alter and abolish the oppressive government. So that's why the Ninth Amendment is so important. It's telling us our rights don't come from government. They come from God or they inherent in us by virtue of the fact that we're human. And the Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights because it ensures that Governments serve the purposes for which they're created, namely to protect rights rather than menace them. One more thing about the Ninth Amendment. It's become the source of many of the most controversial constitutional debates of the 20th century because it's been invoked by the Supreme Court, although not all that explicitly, as the source of the right to privacy recognized in Roe v. Wade. Uh, there's, the word privacy doesn't appear in the Constitution, and some justices, such as Justice Arthur Goldberg, in his uh, concurrence in the Griswold case from the 1960s, which recognized the right of married couples to use contraception, indicated that he believed that the right of privacy is so important that uh, the fact that it's not written down doesn't mean that it's not constitutional. And for him, the Ninth Amendment reinforced that conclusion Other scholars have invoked the Ninth Amendment as the source of rights and have tried to suggest that other unenumerated rights are protected by the Constitution because of the Ninth Amendment. Without taking sides in this debate, I just would say that it's, it's pretty clear that the framers viewed the Ninth Amendment as a rule of construction rather than a source of rights. It said, don't assume if it's not written down, it's not protected. It didn't tell us which rights that weren't written down were protected. So if you're going to make an argument about whether or not a right is protected by the Constitution, even though it's not written down, I think it's more convincing not just to invoke the Ninth Amendment, but also to make some independent argument about why the right is so important that the Constitution protects it. I think our great podcast uh, listeners from high school uh, can deal with all that and more because a great group of them came to the Constitution Center recently. These are high school kids from my high school in uh, New York, uh, Dalton, and they were just spectacular. And we did have a great conversation about natural rights theory in which some of them uh, understood that the implications of natural rights theory mean that some parts of the constitution might be unamendable. In other words, if people passed a constitutional amendment that purported to alienate the rights that the framers considered unalienable, that amendment might itself be unenforceable uh, it was the most sophisticated point imaginable and it just confirmed my sense that all students when you really engage constitutional arguments can engage them deeply and can cast fresh and illuminating light on them thanks for that great question
1: thank you for that answer it's fascinating it clears up a lot of things for me I have to say um, We're going to now get into some of the more familiar amendments, but uh, with some interesting spins on sort of how we interpret them or how we should interpret them. The first is about the Second Amendment. Uh, The questioner asks, uh, in the argument over Second Amendment rights, it seems that people forget about the, quote, a well-regulated militia, end quote, part. Doesn't that imply that those who would be employed to defend our country have the right to bear arms? but not necessarily the public at large?
0: Well, it's a great question, of course, and it's also a question that goes to the heart of one of the most hotly contested uh, constitutional controversies today, namely, does the Second Amendment uh, protect an individual right or a collective right? And the first thing I want to do is plug the superb program and podcast that we had with Michael Waldman and Alan Gura. Recently, Waldman has written an excellent new book on the Second Amendment, and he argues that it protects a collective right, and Gura argued in one the leading Supreme Court cases involving the Second Amendment, uh, and he believes that the Second Amendment protects an individual right. Let me read the text of the Second Amendment, then I'll give you the best arguments on both sides and answer the Good question. Second Amendment says, "A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed." And our good questioner, like much of the Second Amendment debate, focuses on the meaning and significance of that prefatory clause. I think it's called in the fancy legalese, but basically the, the first words of the amendment, which say, "A well-regulated militia." Does that mean that the framers were trying to only protect the ability of people who served in militias to bear arms, or were they interested in protecting gun ownership beyond the militia? What I learned from the fascinating debate between Gura and Waldman is that there are decent arguments on both sides of this question, but that Evidence suggests that at the time of the framing, the majority view, in other words, most of the states that proposed um, predecessors of the Second Amendment believed that it was a collective right. They were especially concerned about standing armies uh, being used to disarm the state militias because the state militias were protections against British tyranny, and they wanted to be sure that the new federal government would not disarm the state Militias. And you could, this is confirmed if you go to our rights interactive um, mini site, you'll be able to see that most of the revolutionary state constitutions talked about it as uh, a, a right related to militia service. However, there was evidence on the other side, uh, at least one state, I think it was Pennsylvania, and Waldman will forgive me if I'm misremembering, did refer to an individual right to their arms at the time of the framing. So some people then viewed it as uh, a natural right that could be invoked in self-defense against a tyrannical government unrelated to militia service. And then we come to the time of the Civil War when the Second Amendment was incorporated or applied against the states. And by that time, the majority view was that it was an individual right. Uh, there were many uh, abolitionists who believed that the the natural and individual rights of African-Americans to defend themselves against uh, tyrannical Southerners, uh, whether African-American freedmen or uh, enslaved people who were defending themselves. All all of their rights to bear arms were being infringed by chattel slavery, and gun ownership came to be seen as, as more of an individual right. That's pretty significant because if you're trying to figure out what the Second Amendment means... Today, at the state level, we should care about the views of the framers of the 14th Amendment uh, rather than simply those of the original framers. But what was so interesting to me about the great debate between Waldman and Gura was that regardless of whether you're persuaded that it's an individual or a collective right, that doesn't much matter in practice because Gura and Waldman, who disagreed about the historical sources of the Second Amendment agreed that its framers and ratifiers would have upheld the constitutionality of most of the reasonable regulations that are being proposed and adopted today. In other words, you can believe, as Gura does, and as many uh, people do, including President Obama, incidentally, that the Second Amendment is an individual right and still believe that reasonable gun control is constitutional and Permissible, And there are plenty of liberal scholars from our friend Akila Mar of Yale Law School, Sandy Levinson of University of Texas, another friend of the Constitution Center, and others have uh, famously argued that the Second Amendment isn't, is an individual right, broader than simply related to militia service, but at the same time that most gun restrictions uh, uh, proposed today are permissible and constitutional. I love that debate between Gura and Waldman because it confirmed that this constitutional argument that we think of as so polarizing and polarized that so divides people politically uh, is one in which there's surprising common ground. So I'd encourage our listeners to learn more about the history of the Second Amendment, to read, uh, first of all, listen to the podcast, read Waldman's book, read the Supreme Court opinions in uh, Heller and McDonald, uh, to uh, both the majority opinions and the dissent, which have vigorous disputes about the history, but then uh, recognize the fact that uh, both views are, are, are possibly consistent with some gun regulations. Of course, there are very hard constitutional questions about which regulations are permissible, and the uh, Justice Scalia's uh, opinion in Heller has been criticized by some very distinguished conservative judges, including uh, Judge J. Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, for being poor originalism because, you know, on the one hand it uh, it says the Second Amendment is an individual right but doesn't provide us a methodology for figuring out which regulations in particular the framers would have upheld aside from just having a laundry list of things that Justice Scalia assumes were protected. A complicated historical debate, an important constitutional one, it reminds us that no clause of the Bill of Rights is unimportant and it's important to learn enough about them not to just get caught up in the politics of the matter but recognize that uh, constitutional history is complicated? It's a great question.
1: All right, with that in mind, we're going to wade just a tiny bit, maybe dip our toes into the politics of it, but just let's, let's look at a hypothetical and ask, what is the strictest gun law the government could create before it becomes unconstitutional?
0: Well, a hard question. Let's start with what the Supreme Court said recently. The Supreme Court has struck down complete bans on handguns in D.C. and Chicago. So I think we're pretty confident that a complete or outright ban on uh, the use of guns for self-defense in the home would be permissible. But uh, there hasn't been a lot of other guidance from the Supreme Court on the question, Justice Scalia's opinion was famously vague about the details of of precisely what else would be prohibited and what else would be permissible. So we've got to look to lower court rulings for an idea of just where things are going. This past August, a federal judge struck down California's 10-day waiting period for gun purchases. In July, a federal judge struck down a D.C. ban on carrying handguns in public. And in February, a uh, federal judge judge uh, Richard Posner struck down a Chicago ban on legal gun sales. actually forgive me it was not, uh, uh, judge uh, Posner uh, opinion uh, related to uh, carrying guns in public um, and it was quite uh, it's well worth a read and that 's just uh, in the past uh, six months we also um, have to remember that Justice Scalia's majority opinion in the the Heller case acknowledged that the Second Amendment does allow for some regulation of gun sales and ownership. And the bottom line is, as Judge Wilkinson complained and as as Gura and uh, and Waldman acknowledged, there's no bright line on this question. Um, We just uh, have to rely on lower court judges to figure out what kind of restrictions look like outright bans and what kind Restrictions are like the gun inspections and other reasonable regulations that the framers took for granted. Uh, let's continue to stay tuned.
1: Great. Let's move to the Fifth Amendment now. Does the Fifth Amendment protect computer files, encrypted computer files, from decryption?
0: Okay, this is a hard... And interesting question, of course, as all of our great questions are uh, because of our podcast listeners who are so engaged. Um, So first of all, what's decryption? It's the opposite of encryption. Encryption is the process of taking data and converting it into a form that can't be read or understood without authorized access. Decryption is the reverse process of converting back that data into something that's generally readable. Apple has famously and recently decided to – uh, encrypt the data that goes over its network, which will make it harder uh, to invade privacy. That's the good part. Uh, it'll also make it harder for federal law enforcement to issue subpoenas for the identity of uh, child abusers, for example, who do exchange child pornography online because uh, Apple will no longer have access to that information. And you could argue that's a bad thing. So uh, decryption is important and has big consequences. Uh, What does the Fifth Amendment say? Uh, There are a bunch of clauses of the Fifth Amendment, but the part that's relevant to our question here is the part that says, nor shall any person be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. In other words, this is a protection against self-incrimination. So the question is, can you compel someone to decrypt their data without violating the Fifth Amendment? Now, each of the amendments has a sort of paradigm case that it was passed to address a particular controversy that the framers were concerned about. And in the case of the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause, the paradigm case was a concern about the horror of oaths, of being forced to swear an oath uh, against your will. The framers took oaths very seriously because they believed if you violated them, you would suffer eternal damnation basically committing perjury, taking an oath before God and violating that oath to God, meant that you were condemned to eternal hellfire. So you can imagine that would focus the mind and make the framers concerned about situations where people are compelled to swear oaths. Uh, They were especially concerned about the hated star chamber um, in England where religious dissenters would be called, forced to swear the oath ex officio which basically would have promised to answer any question that was posed without knowing in advance under oath and then were interrogated about their religious beliefs so a religious dissenter forced to swear the oath ex officio basically asked are you uh do, do you subscribe to the church of england or are you a, a, a puritan or a, a leveler is faced with what the framers uh, considered a cruel trilemma basically a really bad series of three choices you're asked or you're a dissenter, you can say no, thereby lying, committing perjury and going to hell. You can say yes, you are a dissenter, which is punishable by death and again uh, con- con- condemning you to an excruciating execution. Or you can refuse to answer, be held in contempt, and once again either in prison forever or killed. So really, three really bad choices to be asked about your religious beliefs under the oath ex officio. John Lilburn, the dissenter, famously uh, when, when asked us where the oath said, nemo uh, or no person is bound to accuse themselves. That's the way that it's been translated loosely. So all this is to say that the framers were so concerned about oaths that they originally refused to allow suspects to testify under oath. You were not permitted to swear an oath because of the dangers of being condemned to the eternal hellfires and confronting the cruel trilemma. Through a complicated process, that ban on oaths was abandoned. It's actually a rather uh, alarming or, or jarring history. Um, witnesses were were sworn, but the accused were not. And in the 19th century, uh, racist Southerners didn't like the fact that accused white um, people could not swear under oath, but the African-American witnesses could be sworn. So it was because of uh, racist concern with that asymmetry that the ban on accused people being put under oath was abandoned. And, uh, And today, of course, you can, in front of a grand jury, be interrogated under oath. But the um, question of how much the Fifth Amendment protects mental privacy is much mooted. You would think that given this concern about oaths and the fact that the framers really didn't like people to be interrogated about the content of their mind under oath in ways that would uh, incriminate themselves, that the Fifth Amendment today would contain robust protections for privacy, of private papers, of thoughts, and so forth. And it was once construed to do so in the Boyd case from the late 19th century, which Justice Louis Brandeis called the high watermark for privacy and civil liberties. The court held that a subpoena for a a commercial uh, receipt, it was a receipt for plate glass, and this guy was being investigated for violating uh, commercial laws, for not paying impost duties. Um, The court said that His private business papers couldn't be subpoenaed because that would be a violation of both the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment, which almost run into each other in the court's majority opinion. So seriously did they take the protection of private papers that even a commercial subpoena, uh, a subpoena for commercial papers, was considered a violation of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. But those privacy protections were whittled away over the course of the 20th century, largely because of a concern about enforcing the regulatory state. During the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, courts came to realize that if you can't issue subpoenas for plate glass and so forth, uh, you can't enforce health and safety laws, environmental laws, and the burgeoning regulatory state. So for that reason, the substantive Fifth Amendment protections for private papers were whittled away. And today, and I always find this hard to teach because it's so surprising, the Fifth Amendment protects... um, very little substantive uh, privacy protections it does uh, it, it protects the contents of your mind from government uh, intrusion only when the um, intrusion is considered uh, uh, testimonial and there are complicated definitions of what 's testimonial and what 's not whether you 're basically whether you 're revealing information the government wouldn 't already know from a regular uh, search or seizure so You could argue in this case uh, that decryption is exempted from the Fifth Amendment if the encrypted data is a foregone conclusion. In other words, if the government can demonstrate that it already knows what's hidden based on other evidence um, uh, or you could uh, say that uh, if revealing the encrypted information is the only way of getting the information, there's arguably a Fifth Amendment violation. Uh, How would the U.S. Supreme Court rule on this matter. There's been no direct precedent. The court did have a great decision last June um, uh, in the Riley case, uh, which said that you can't be forced when you're arrested to reveal the contents of your cell phone. That was without a warrant. That was considered a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, and on the day that Riley came down, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled 5-2 to two that a criminal suspect could be forced to decrypt his seized computer, and the court cited the foregone conclusion exemption uh, based on other information the suspect provided to a law enforcement officer. But there's a disagreement on this question. Two years ago, the 11th Circuit held that a criminal suspect couldn't be forced to decrypt his computer. Last year, a federal judge in Wisconsin uh, ruled the same way. So we're seeing something, the the, uh, emergence of what could be a, a circuit split on the question, and remember when the federal circuits disagree about a constitutional question, that's the likeliest way of ensuring that the Supreme Court will intervene. That means stay tuned, we might have a Supreme Court ruling on this question before too long.
1: Let's move to something, dare I say, a little easier. Uh, <laughs> that is this Does the Patriot Act? And does NSA surveillance conflict with the Bill of Rights?
0: Well, I don't know if it's easier, but it is more – the arguments are less legalistic. And you know that they're ones that I get very fired up about uh, because I'm so engaged by these privacy questions. And we had a phenomenal debate about NSA surveillance at the Constitution Center uh, a few weeks ago with our good friends at Intelligence Squared and – please check out that podcast if you hadn't, because you will bear here the best arguments for and against the constitutionality of NSA surveillance. I'll just summarize them quickly. Uh, And in a good NCC style, I'm not going to tell you what to think. You listen and make up your own mind. So here's the argument that the surveillance of our telephone metadata, that is the phone numbers that we dial in each call, either within the U.S. or internationally, is collected by the government. Um, The question is, does that collection, without a warrant, violate the Fourth Amendment? Let's read the Fourth Amendment. This one I can do without picking up my pocket constitution. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Um, Is it an unreasonable search or seizure of our... Uh, electronic effects to collect them, that is those telephone numbers, without a warrant. Uh, The argument that it is an unconstitutional search and seizure invokes a founding era analogy, namely the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution. In the Riley cell phone case, Chief Justice John Roberts, on behalf of all nine of his colleagues, held that the warrantless search of a cell phone is just as bad as a general warrant. What was a general warrant? Roberts invoked the hated writs of assistance uh, and general warrants that authorized the king's agents to break into the homes of uh, people who were violating the hated uh, tax laws in Boston. And James Otis called these writs of assistance uh, engines of tyranny. He said it puts the liberty of every man at the discretion of a petty officer and John Adams said of Otis's speech, at that moment, the child independence was born. So Roberts quotes this riveting history and, 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 and notes the framers were so, so fired up about these writs of assistance and general warrants that they fought a revolution to prohibit them. And in the Fourth Amendment, made clear that if you're going to have a very intrusive search that can reveal an awful lot of private information, a warrant that particularly specifies the place to be searched or the person or things to be seized to quote the second part of the fourth amendment is generally required so we know that the supreme court has said that the warrantless search of the contents of a cell phone is like a general warrant and is unconstitutional and those who believe that nsa surveillance is unconstitutional would say the search of our domestic phone numbers is can reveal as much about us as the search of our cell phones um you could, it could reveal that you called a, a young woman, called her gynecologist, and then called a boyfriend, and then called a reproductive rights clinic and would tell us a lot about that. It can also uh, allow the government to reconstruct our movements. Um, it also reaches a huge number of people. In its initial incarnation, the government was collecting uh, all phone numbers, and then if uh, something looked suspicious, would drill down deeper, up to three hops. What's a a hop? Uh, You'd call, you'd look at not only all the numbers the the suspect called, but all the numbers uh, that all the people who called the suspect called, and then so on to one more degree. If the suspect calls a Domino's pizza, then everyone who called that Domino's pizza would be uh, subject to scrutiny. In striking down NSA surveillance, Judge Richard Leon the US, Court of, uh, U.S. District Court in D.C. said hundreds of millions of people are potentially affected. Uh, there's a danger for the data to be hacked or misused, and it has the potential to reveal a huge amount about us. Therefore, it's just like a general warrant and should be struck down. And Judge Leon strikingly um, quoted the same language from James Otis and John Adams that, Chief Justice Roberts would go on to quote in striking on striking down cell phone surveillance. So that's the argument in favor of the unconstitutionality of NSA surveillance. What's the argument on the other side? It is that um, the search of metadata is not like the search of a cell phone. There's a big difference between the telephone numbers we call and the actual emails we write or the texts that we send or the photos that we store on our cell phones and Some courts have said that we have no expectation of privacy in our metadata. In a uh, case from the 1970s, much cited by the government, the Smith case, uh, courts held that when I voluntarily surrender uh, phone numbers to the phone company, I have no expectation of privacy in it, and the phone company is permitted to turn that data over to the government. There's also that, that opinion was based on a doctrine called the third-party doctrine that holds more more generally that when I surrender data to a third party, I lose all expectation of privacy in it. And based on the Smith case and based on the third-party doctrine, most of the courts, the lower courts, to have considered the constitutionality of NSA surveillance have upheld its constitutionality. That was a point made by the two great debaters in our IQ squared debate who – said that NSA surveillance was not unconstitutional. John Yu and Stuart Baker both cited the Smith case and they cited the third-party doctrine. Uh, so there you have it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, on the one hand, we have this precedent from the 1970s and a bunch of lower court opinions upholding NSA surveillance on the grounds that we have no expectation of privacy in our metadata. On the other hand, you have the argument that this metadata reveals so much about us that it is like the general warrants that sparked the American revolution and the prediction that if the Supreme court considers the constitutionality of NSA surveillance, which it Justice Scalia said, he expected eventually to do, especially if there's a disagreement among the lower courts, um, the, the prediction is that the Supreme court would uh, strike the surveillance down. And since I have the luxury of not being in the prediction business, unlike our great podcast guests uh, every week, I think that I am not going to presume to predict which way the Supreme Court would go, at least not right now.
1: All right. Well, thank you. That is all the questions we've got. Thanks so much, Jeff.
0: Thanks so much, Nicondro. Thanks to our great listeners for their superb questions. We are going to have a return of the thrilling series, Ask Jeff, in December for a year-end Ask Jeff edition. So start your questions coming in. Uh, for that. And please be sure to join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcast. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.